This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning, you're listening to The Property Show in the morning run. I'm Sim Wee Boon. The COVID-19 pandemic has had a profound impact on human lives, claiming close to 2.7 million deaths worldwide. Social distancing, nationwide lockdowns and work from home have become familiar words to all of us as these interventions took place to curb the spread of the virus. But how has this affected the mental well-being and our general state of happiness, especially for those of us that's living in the city? So in conjunction with International Day of Happiness, I'll be looking at the relationship between living in a city, happiness and COVID-19. Joining me in this discussion is Hamdan Abdul-Majid, Managing Director of Think City, a community-focused urban regeneration organization. Thank you for joining us on the show, Hamdan. I'm going to start off the conversation with my first question, which is, how has COVID-19 affected the state of those living in the cities? I think, as we know now, we are now one year into, or slightly over a year into facing the pandemic, as what has been called. Uh, as a word pandemic, you know, it affects everyone across and system-wide. And the nature of COVID-19 has been such that it is uh, easily transmittable, thus meant that there was a need to restrain contact and also to restrict movement. Uh, and thus we have seen in Malaysia and many parts of the world that countries have, to, have gone into periods of lockdown. But that concern now seems to be easing out with the vaccination uh, program that has started. And, uh, and provides probably confidence to people to see that, you know, uh, while we need to continue to be restrained, uh, there is uh, light at the end of the tunnel. Did, were, were there any startling discoveries about the effect uh, for someone living in a city over a prolonged period of time in isolation or in, you know, work from home in a lockdown? I mean, what were the kind of like detrimental effects that really stood out? I think... Uh, from based on our work and also what we have seen uh, in terms of research that's out there, generally people who have uh, isolation and, and have been put in what they call restriction uh, generally find face a sense of uh, social disorder. What more with the pandemic? Uh, so meaning that you know we as human beings are social animals. So those who are worst affected that we have seen in the crisis have been those who are single families, uh, older people, uh, and probably even we observe that even the younger children have faced a very challenging state uh, time by virtue that, 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 they, that they have been kept away from their workplaces, homes, or from their schools and other places has definitely affected people's uh, mental well-being to some extent and also social well-being more importantly. But then again, you know, the counterbalance to that, you know, unlike, say, 100 years ago today, uh, when, you know, when we had the Spanish flu 100 years ago, today we are in a slightly different environment where um, the aid of technology has allowed us to somehow be able to stay connected. We are able to work from home. We are able to school from home. We are able to connect with families from home. Uh, so that elevates the fact that the ability to uh, to connect and uh, engage and to be able to uh, uh, stay in touch with our family and friends. But uh, with regards to whether people in cities are disproportionately affected versus people in living outside of cities, I would probably say that uh, it, the, the context may need to be seen is that uh, 
it's more the case of people who have less space versus people who have more space. Uh, people who have more space definitely have more room to be able to move around. But amidst the restriction, while the, those who have less space are restricted, those who are the bottom 40 communities, particularly those living in PPRs, those are probably more worse affected than, than those who have more spaces and so on. So there is a sense of uh, uh, inequality of uh, how the pandemic has affected different segments of society. Okay, so let's take KL for an example. What were the benefits and drawbacks or the observations that you can infer to regarding to how people dealt with COVID-19 and state of well-being is affected living in KL? I think Kuala Lumpur as a city has not done too well, not, not too bad. The lockdowns and the CMCOs or the conditional movements uh, have not been to the extreme. And uh, government has been very pragmatic in terms of managing it while trying to actually contain the spread. Uh, and I think there's been a balance between uh, economic and uh, economic growth or activities and livelihood versus safety and uh, uh, longevity of our lives. And I think that there seems to be a balanced approach that's been taken. So Kuala Lumpur is probably, I would, I would probably say that, that, that uh, uh, it is not as worse affected, say maybe in, in, in compared to uh, uh, other cities that were in total lockdowns and so on, or in cities that were, had high incidence of uh, cases that, that forced people to be in a state of fear. Um, in, uh, especially what we have seen in the West, particularly in, uh, we saw how in Europe, in the UK, and even in the US, uh, in the early phase of the crisis where there was a, there was a state of panic and fear. Uh, in Malaysia, I think in general, and in Kuala Lumpur in particular, uh, I think things were in a much more well-ordered environment and people were generally compliant and there was uh, to a large extent social order. Uh, and uh, while people accepted that they have to go through this pain so that there's some future gain out of all of this. COVID-19 aside, if you could gauge the level of happiness of someone living in KL, how would you rank in terms of happiness? Uh, how happy is the city of KL? COVID-19 aside, I mean, because we know that COVID-19 throws in a lot of different factors, but you know, in general, the city itself, how would you rank it? I think happiness is probably generally a state of mind while the happiness ranking that is used probably tries to use the composite factors uh, that looks at different variables and so on. In the case of the, the World Happiness Report, they look at income le- uh, income level factors, they look at health, life expectancy factors, social support factors, uh, freedom, trust, and generosity. Um, so Kuala Lumpur comes in and Malaysia generally comes in somewhere in the middle. Uh, mean, meaning that you know we are uh, a nation of glass half full, uh, and there's much to be made in terms of progressing that needle further. Uh, but that does not mean you know uh, people here are not happy uh, or they're not doing well. But as we progress and as we develop, the needs and the expectations of uh, each person also start shifting. The income level expectancy has also increased. Uh, well, you know, we have seen how our health and life expectancy has improved in some extent, but, you know, it's in some areas, because of the improvement in income levels and so on, we have seen obesity has become a big challenge among the younger generation. Uh, you know, in Malaysia, you do have a social support whereby you could go and get education is relatively, is provided free. Maybe there's issues about 
quality of education, but healthcare is also equally provided free and so on. So as a city and as a country, I think um, we do have some of the positive factors. But I think when you compare ourselves with those from the top rank, you know, Finland, Norway, and so on, there's much we can learn from there in terms of how they have made to have been able to build societies that are more equitable, more inclusive, societies that are more sustainable. So those are the other composite factors that at least build the what we call uh, things that will make people happier. While when you're going from a low income to middle income, your happiness is around maybe income and uh, making available food in your table. But being from middle income to middle income, high income, the factors that you look at are, are slightly larger and, and probably a lot more qualitative. Uh, and then that's where I think Malaysia may need to focus its efforts on in terms of focusing on quality, focusing on in terms of uh, making things a lot more tailored uh, and uh, a lot more what you call uh, uh, a lot more sensitivity to the to what you call quality aspects and so on. Okay, but what are the tangible manners of which we could improve in these uh, aspects that you've mentioned? I mean, is there anything that maybe the people, the private sector or the government, what kind of policies, assistance that can be done to improve the conditions and improve the happiness? I think a tangible action that we see that needs to happen is that there needs to be collective ownership of making the journey of care moving up to happiness ranking. It's not uh, any particular group, whether it's not uh, neither the government or the private sector or communities on themselves can achieve this. That's number one. Number two, I think there are probably also a number of things that we can do in terms of improving our quality of life. You know, uh, simple things from very, very simple Basic things like you know improving access to public spaces, improving and enhancing public realm, uh, especially for those who are living in, in uh, restricted environments that I mentioned earlier. Any introduction of any public space or public realm improvements in those communities will definitely go a long way. Uh, so there are a number of things, and this, this, and these are these are various, and they need, and probably we need. Maybe it requires to be tailored to the needs of specific communities and parts of. Itself, because uh, and I think that's part of what we need to do is to identify, based on us uh, on a much smaller region, smaller focus areas, what exactly is required, and then maybe that the third thing is that have the conversations with the citizens, have that engagement to open up and uh, be more inviting, to allow for that trust to uh, emerge between citizen and state, and for state to have the trust of the people to be able to execute in the interest of the people. And I think that's very, very fundamental as we see in terms of building the pathway towards uh, happiness. Okay, and we'll get more into this, but we're going to take a short break for some messages. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to The Property Show on The Morning Run. I'm Sim Weeboon, and with me today is Hamdan Abdul-Majid, Managing Director of the community-focused urban regeneration organization known as Think City. It's a special International Day of Happiness episode. We're talking about the relationship between living in a city, happiness, and COVID-19. We talked about cities and KL before the break. Let's widen the discussion out to the other cities in KL. I mean, in terms of promoting happiness and in terms of doing happiness well, are there any other cities that can be highlighted? Um, you know, Georgetown, Kuching, and why? Uh, I think... Generally, Malaysian cities uh, are all reflective of what we see in KL. Whereby that you know, we have, that these are all cities that have seen rapid urbanization. One, two, that you know, like that most people have either moved to the cities from their rural areas, or they have remained 
the fact that because that, that this is the place of uh, living and so on. So everything has centered around some form of livelihood and uh, existence. Um, and generally, as a, as a country that is still rapidly developing and still on a pathway of development and progress, we are on that trajectory of, of, uh, of being half-full. And generally, then we get mixed outcomes when we do an assessment of happiness because yeah, there are a number of people who have benefited from the, the, the pathway they've taken. But there are also equally equal number of people who are not been uh, fully reaped the, the dividends out of the urban progress that the country has achieved. So in that context, I probably will say that that's why that we are somewhere that we are middling in terms of outcome, and uh, and generally Malaysian cities probably are all around probably will mirror each other in terms of outcomes. Uh, so there could be slighter difference, uh, particularly in those smaller secondary cities because of the fact that the cost of living and probably urban stress is probably much less. But then again, it, it is commensurated with wage differential that you can see that. So, you know, it eventually equalizes out. Okay, I want to talk about this concept of uh, centralization versus decentralization because, you know, during MCO, during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we've seen a trend of people moving out of the cities from KL back to their hometowns, you know, because of various other factors, wanting to be with their family. But now that things are slowly, as most would say, get better because of vaccination and whatnot, do you see like this trend to continue, especially given the economic situation that we have, or will you see people return to the cities? Okay, regards to the issue of determine the, the issue of a donut city. Now, historically, most people live in city centers, uh, and probably in the more recent periods, people have moved to the suburbs, uh, and and uh, and they commute between the suburbs to the city center. Now, during the COVID period, I think uh, what we saw was that people either remained in their suburbs because, you know, offices were closed and downtown areas were shut, uh, or they, some of them, what do you call, managed to move to their, uh, maybe their, their, what do you call, uh, companies and so on. But those numbers are much small because uh, it, the movement control was sudden and most people did not have the time to be able to reorganize their, their, their activities. So most remain in in in, uh, in their suburbs. Now, what was the difference between before pre-crisis and post-crisis was that the donut effect was already there pre-crisis, uh, and uh, and more likely, in my sense, that it likely will continue post-crisis. But the difference is that, and in, in during the crisis, the city centers were totally empty because the offices were all shut. The question that arises in the future, as economic activities come back to normal and for the post-vaccination environment. Uh, we anticipate that this work from home or work from anywhere uh, is going to become a norm. And that means that in the future that there is going to be greater availability of spaces, uh, vacant spaces in city centers. And I think that's going to be the challenge in the sense that how do you uh, not only really call repopulate our city centers, but how do you even deal with the vacancy that's going to emerge? Uh, and also the, probably the case that uh, you know there's always been an oversupply of space uh, and how do how would this whole supply of space even be absorbed in the future? So that requires uh, a reassessment of the situation and probably newer sets of measures in terms of what you call how do we rebalance given the fact that there's going to be this new norm that people will be working from anywhere or working from home. And it definitely directly affects uh, the way the city will function. Uh, but we as said, we believe that, you know, that 
there have been conversations about the role of cities in a post-COVID world. We have seen cities have gone through these kinds of crises, not only now, but over the last few hundred years, uh, from the Great Plague in London to the various events that took place around the world in different, different periods in the last few hundred years. But cities have come back stronger. Cities have reinvented themselves, and the cities probably also made uh, will probably go a uh, rethinking in terms of their roles and probably what you call uh, respond to the changing world. And one fundamental thing at the end of the day is that we will have to go back to the, the basics of why a city exists. And cities exist for fundamental reasons. It's a place where people meet, exchange, trade, a place where people are able to uh, connect, people are able to uh, socialize. So, so there are broader factors that actually reason why cities exist. And I believe those factors will become far much more important. I personally believe and I'm very hopeful of the, a future where the role of cities will become greater and important as we continue to progress as an urban nation. Okay, but looking back into our cities, uh, let's go back to KL, for example. Our government or private sector is also somewhat obsessed with building dense cities with huge public infrastructures and a focus of multi-story buildings, apartments, office buildings and all. I mean, what do you have to say about this um, push towards more buildings, more modernization? Or perhaps will we see our cities grow horizontally and spread out with less focus on buildings and perhaps more on transportation and open spaces? Okay. Density and, uh, is linked to agglomeration. Agglomeration is linked to what you call the X factor that, that's able to get this, the role of cities as the engines of growth and, and innovation. While I think verticality has become a phase of how urbanization is seen, but more importantly, the question is that, you know, I think we need to understand how do we optimize the land use that will allow us as human society to exist in a functional way uh, as opposed to you know, coming to an environment where you you are in a state of uh, un- unhappiness, uh, or rather, you know, you achieve you know in economics we call it where you see a diminishing marginal returns. So, what is the right level of densification? I think the word that I rather like to use it's a case of that our cities needs to be compacted, but it needs to be compacted with a human scale that is allow us to be able to be efficient and effective. And I think. There are new concepts around this that has emerged around the 15-minute city, the 20-minute cities that has become a focal point. In fact, last year we saw, we heard that the mayor of Paris has adopted that as a pathway for Paris, where the live-work-play will be organized around the 15-minute notes. And probably in KL, maybe that's a concept that we want to think, whereby we call that we will reduce our commute times. Uh, we probably want to organize our living and working in a more closed environment. And probably we want to have a land use uh, environment where it is optimized for living as well as for living, meaning that meaning that it's enough green spaces, places for uh, our, our what we call uh, for for social activities and, and, and a mixed mixed use environment and so on. So there needs to be a composite set of factors that will then eventually make a great city. And we have seen how some cities that have done very well, uh, you know, example would be the case of uh, Barcelona which has a population of a million and a half, but its urban footprint is very small and it's, and it's been able to organize itself very effectively by efficient space use. And in fact, the city, it probably comes as one example of a city that is both livable, uh, a city that is uh, very sustainable because of its low urban footprint, 
and a city that is what do you call uh, you can walk about and you can go in metro networks and other things and so on. So it's it's not to say that there are no specific examples, but other I think the pathway that Malaysia has taken may need to be reassessed as we move towards building uh, more from a quantity to a quality approach, and more from a, uh, just a case of uh, building spaces for us to live to an environment where we want we want it to be livable and livable. So maybe to round off the conversation we're having today is how important is it for a city to develop organically? Should there be increased intervention from government or you just let it grow by itself? Because some would say that in our attempt to modernize the city, we could remove the soul of the city to say. While we want to have some level of organicness, but I think it's also important it's a plan lab. While it, we don't want it to be too commercial in nature, a city is a work of art while it is you know, engineering in nature and probably what you call... Uh, but from our point of view, we, we look at the factor that will really make a difference in cities is the fact that if the people can own and have a sense of ownership and be able to own the direction of change of the cities and whether the city government creates platforms that allows for citizens to be able to effectively participate and shape the direction of the city. Because at the end of the day, when you have a high level of ownership and high level of participation, you're going to be able to achieve high level of happiness and, and a high level of engaged citizenry. And at the end of the day, if you have a high level of engagement, then the city is going to do things that are what their people want. And I think if for, for Malaysia and generally in, in cities in Malaysia, I would probably advocate that we may need to step up our level of getting our citizens' participation, our in communities to be more greatly engaged and probably even to the extent that they should be actively partnered in bringing the change and transformation in how our cities grow and evolve. Uh, and that should be a, a partnership between the citizens, the public sector, the private sector, and whoever else that's interested. Cities are organic creations by virtue that they are biological. And there's much that we can learn in terms of how cities functions, a network of cells that eventually becomes and call ecosystem and eventually they become an ecology. All right. Thanks for being on the show, Hamdan. That was Hamdan Abdul-Majid, the Managing Director of Think City, a community-focused urban regeneration organization. Just want to wish everyone there out here a happy International Day of Happiness tomorrow. You've been listening to The Property Show. I'm Sim Weeboon, signing off for the morning run. We've got the 10 a.m. news bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise, PFM 89.9. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.